The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the Cash Offer edition of Slate Money, your incredibly great value guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm coming at you for free. <laughs> Unless you're a sub- Slate Plus subscriber, in which case, thank you for subscribing to Slate Plus. Um, I am joined by Anna Shemansky. Hello. By Jordan Weissman. Hello. And we are going to talk about Warren Buffett because we haven't talked about Warren Buffett for a while. And he was in a numbers round recently. One of yeah. the things that he is doing is he's decided that he likes to be really boring. He used to be interesting or he's moved from one boring industry which is insurance to another boring industry which is regulated anyway we are going to talk about <laughs> warren buffett being boring and i and the weird thing is that for all three of us this is like the sexy bit of the yeah. podcast no it's, it, it really is his, his it's attempt, my favorite topic. warren buffett's attempt to be boring has actually become very exciting, Super exciting. so we ha- so yeah there's there's bidding wars there's he also, never ever gets into there, bidding wars nope. so i'm we're not going to talk any more about this but trust me it will be kind of interesting. If you don't know who Warren Buffett has got into a bidding war with, um, see if you can answer that question before we get to segment three. Um, before segment three, we're going to have segment two. And segment two is going to be all about coding boot camps. You may have heard of coding boot camps. They're very cool Our these days, but not all is well in the world of coding boot camps. Alas. Um, and because we haven't talked about money for, wait, we talk about money every single week. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> once or twice. We've only, we haven't, we haven't talked about cash, like actual physical cash in a while. We haven't right. discussed the, we haven't discussed bills. So I've decided that what we're going to do is we're going to kick off this podcast with a little segment about a publicity stunt, because why not? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you know, those restaurants you go into where they're like we take amex and cash only and it's basically the restaurant being bribed by amex to refuse to accept visa or mastercard yes yes well now visa has decided that this kind of stunt is so great an idea that they're going to get in on the act as well and they have decided to pick 50 vendors and tell them that what they need to do in order to get ten thousand dollars or however much some new equipment some new equipment a bunch of cash from visa is to say we're not taking cash any cash any cash if you want to pay for your sandwich you need to use some kind of piece of plastic now you know this is something which i guess we've come across in airline cabins you know the that's if you want norway but yeah (laughs) (laughs) Well, the big cashless society is actually Sweden, the most cashless society in the world. And one of the interesting things about the Sweden story is that it was a very deliberate decision by the Swedish government and the Swedish central bank to try and turn Sweden into a cashless society. And it worked. Yeah. And if you make that kind of top-down decision, it can work quite effectively. Um, The other quasi-cashless society or the other big society where people um can go 
weeks without using cash, of course, is Kenya, because the M-Pesa payment system, which, you know, everyone mm-hmm. has a phone, mm-hmm. and and you can use the M-Pesa payment system to pay for just about anything, just using your phone. And the M-Pesa pay- payment system kind of outpaced the the cash payment system in Kenya. So it kind yeah. of got there right. first. Also, a sort of, not government, but a major monopoly, which was trusted more than the government in the form of Safaricom, the big telecom operator in Kenya. So again, you got you basically have this big sort of overarching, highly trusted institution saying, we are all going to do this, and then everyone just does it. Um, the difference, of course, with Visa is they are not a big overarching institution which everyone trusts. But they're, they hate cash. They they feel that they're competing with cash. It, well, which they are. Yeah, they've, they've said this. It's interesting. Like, that is what they... Like, they want to just see cash rid from the world, not for any altruistic reason, but just because they make more money if people are using cards. And so it is better for their business if you are not, you know, paying for your sandwich with greenbacks. And because... And one of the interesting things is the visa was, of course, part of the great Durbin interchange wars of 2013 or 2009 or whenever it was. I can't even remember when it was. Um, it was, I remember writing about it ad nauseam. Um, but it's interesting to me that visa in those great interchange wars was fighting for like visa should get us a high, should be able to charge a higher slice of transactions and then the merchants were saying no 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 the 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 amount of money we need to give to visa should be lower i mean it's an obvious sort of line along which these things should be drawn but if you want your form of payment to be universal yeah then you really should have basically zero cost or at the very least a lower cost than cash well, and also if you're going to start competing with other f- dig- forms of digital payment that at this point are essentially free, that's another consideration they have to make. And well, people right are- now there aren't. I mean, this is interesting because, you know, Apple Pay runs on the Visa and MasterCard rails. So, you know, you pay the same interchange fee for Apple Pay as you do for anything else. Um, if you're using PayPal or Venmo, which is, you know, Whisper. A subsidiary of PayPal. Yeah. Um, the uh, you know again, most of the time people end up funding that through credit cards. So you use those same credit card rails again. What if you're using Bitcoin? God help you. If you're one of the three people using Bitcoin, the cost of making a transaction has been going up and up and up, and is now like over a dollar. Is it really? So huh. it's not. It's not um, obvious that there's like a zero cost digital alternative in the payment space. Perhaps eventually, but I also think it's important to remember that even if there is a cost of a slight cost of using a credit card as opposed to using cash, there's also a tremendous amount of evidence to show that when businesses shift more towards accepting cards, their revenues increase more than offsets the fees that they pay. The question is, um, well, the the question is, there are basically two types of cards, uh, and especially now that the Durbin Act has, has been signed into law. There's the debit cards and the credit cards. Now, Visa can go on either, but the credit card interchange is basically unregulated and is going up and up and up. And the idea of product innovation in the, if you're a product person at Visa, is to come up with some glamorous new high end 
type of credit card which will charge like 18 gazillion percent in interchange and everyone goes oh that's a good idea and starts using that because for a, from a consumer point of view the price doesn't go up if you're using a visa signature versus a debit card but the interchange is much much higher no that i that makes sense i'm just saying that when people are thinking of uh, from the business standpoint whether you're going to accept cash or whether you're going to shift towards accepting cards, even on small payments, if that is still netting out positive in terms of increased revenue, even if you have higher exchange, because even if they are creating some of these newer products that do have these those higher exchange fees, how many people still, though, are actually using those cards as opposed to just your garden variety? More and more. And plus, remember that the garden variety interchange is going up every year as well. So it's it just it's this kind of frog boiling exercise where um, the, (laughs) you know, Visa and MasterCard just get more and more money every year and and they, you know, can basically charge what they like. And it's very difficult to there's no very few market forces which can push back against that. So, I mean, I guess that's sort of what worries me here. and you're not going to be surprised to hear me talk about regulation because uh, that's what I do on this show. But right, like the battle. Well, over- George Jordan's the we need more regulation guy, and yeah. I agree with you yeah, on this well, one. Well, so yeah, that's the thing. Like if you remember the the battle over swipe fees in Congress, it was huge. It was one of the biggest lobbying battles Capitol, had, Capitol Hill had seen in in years, if not decades, because it pitted financial services against retail in in such uh, in a really high stakes game. Um, and in the end, that was didn't even deal with all these issues we're talking about, only kind of deal with a part of it. And so if you are moving away from cash sort of in this unintentional, gradual way where it's not really top down, it's because businesses are making that decision independently, you're eventually potentially left with an oligopoly of companies that run the interchange uh, interchange market, have a ton of power over businesses and consumers, um, really power over businesses and can just kind of collect rents. Uh, it's not economically productive, really, for anyone. It's not good if credit cards can just, you know, gobble up as much of each transaction as they want. Um, and you don't and you don't necessarily have a Congress that's going to be equipped to deal with it. And so that, and it's that's not kind of and it's me. not even Congress. The natural regulator for this is the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve, unlike almost any central any other central bank in the world, and it's partly, I think, to do with the fact that we don't really have a, a central bank in America. It's a bit weird. In most countries, there's a central bank who's like, we're in charge of the money in the system. And yeah. it's in society's interest for that money to move as frictionlessly as possible. Um the U.S. is an interesting outlier in this one because it doesn't really have a central bank. It has 12 different Federal Reserve banks. And then there's a board of governors in Washington. And somehow no one feels empowered to go out there and say the entire system nationwide should be frictionless and we should basically um, regulate the system to ensure that it's as frictionless I, but I as guess it the, can be. I, and I don't disagree. And I, and I, I agree with you that in a perfect world, we would want a Fed that had the ability to regulate this. Completely agree. Having said that, there is also a significant benefit to society towards shifting away from cash and towards more digital payments. And that's uh, the subject of a fascinating book by Ken Rogoff, who who's basically saying, let's use less cash. Cash breeds all manner of inefficiencies and tax evasion and the legal activity. And the more that we can digitize transactions, the better off we'll all be. 
and this is all true. Bye. And, you know, and so the question is, like, how do we get there without just basically writing a trillion dollar check to a few financial services intermediaries? And although I'm not saying I like the idea of writing a check to a few <laughs> large financial intermediaries, if the ultimate like net benefit to society is greater in the interim is that the worst thing in the world? Again, I'm not saying that in a perfect world, we wouldn't have a government that can actually regulate things. But in the world we have, if the alternative is sitting with cash or moving towards digital, I think... Well, I would, plus, I, I, I would say that the move to digital has been probably more hindered than helped by Visa and MasterCard. That, you know, the idea that you have a fixed credit card number, which you then type in for card not present transactions on the internet, is incredibly inherently insecure and difficult and stupid. And the, you know, it took a huge amount of pushing and innovation and regulatory kind of um, like willingness to get involved in regulatory battles by Apple, basically, before we came up with a much more secure and efficient form of paying for things digitally because um, essentially what happens when you pay for something with Apple Pay is that the credit card number is different on every single transaction so yeah. no one can steal your credit card number um, and, it, and that works well but that was innovation from Apple that was not innovation from Visa and MasterCard who should have been innovating that stuff. No and I, and I think this is also where the hope would be that business lobbies that again do benefit from shifting towards taking non-cash payments can use their lobbying power potentially against the credit card companies, which I realize we have not quite seen yet. I think that is probably our one great hope. And, and I do think that it's just important to make a distinction between cashless and digital, because I think yeah. that the you know Visa and MasterCard are cashless, but they're not really digital. And one of the more fascinating things that's going on in the world right now is the raise is the rise of this company called Paytm in India, which um, was kind of pootling along quite happily as an electronic payments and cashless payments service until the demonetization happened, and then um, two things happened: one, demonetization happened, so everyone suddenly started using Paytm because they had no cash, and then the other thing that happened was they got a banking license, and so now like Paytm, which is you know. Uh, not a subsidiary of Alibaba, but Alibaba has a big stake in it. And SoftBank. Um, is is becoming – is one of the more interesting stories in terms of like a private sector company, which is really taking over a huge amount of the payments layer of an economy. Yeah. yeah. I, I would just say as an addendum, I am skeptical that companies like Visa are really going to be able to drive cash out of the U.S., if only because we're sort of anarchic um, and people like being able to have their transaction. I mean, a, it's just easier for a lot of people to use cash, we, given how many unbanked we have and such. But also people just like some degree of privacy and are only becoming more paranoid, I feel like. So. That's true. <laughs> but aren't, there, aren't there all these, these surveys showing that like 30% of millennials have paid for drugs with Venmo? I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know, you, you just put drinks next to that. Thirty percent seems low. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan Schrader is is reckons that thirty percent is low. Um, but Anna, without necessarily 
I'm not asking you whether you've paid for drugs with Venmo, but like, um, just for the record, I have not paid for drugs for Venmo. (laughs) Um, I don't even drink. (laughs) But you do have, but you do have an opinion about Paytm. Yes, I, I think that Paytm offers a lot of opportunity in the emerging market space because you can start to bring. Speaking about the unbanked. In India, obviously, this is a much, much larger issue. I mean, before demonetization, it was something like 95% of the economy was was through cash. And the only way to cut down on corruption, cut down on tax evasion, have the ability to also be able to pay out money in terms of from tax receipts to pay out, you need to get more people into a regulated system. And that is, I think, what Paytm can potentially Offer. Especially seeing as how the Indian Central Bank is incredibly forward thinking in this way. It's giving everyone a bank account at birth. It's made the payment system um, settling like almost instantaneously. In America, if we if I try and pay you money, it normally settles like three days later. In in India, it settles about three seconds later. It's so much more advanced. Wait, how can right. we get that? <laughs> we could if only the Fed like forced the banks to do it. But the problem is that the banks have no incentive to do that on their own. Right. I will say the one concern for Paytm is that the the, um, Central Bank of India has also given licenses to a number of other organizations. So it looks like they're they're going to encounter a bit more competition than M-Pesa did in Kenya. Oh, absolutely. And that's good because what you don't want is private monopoly in charge of payments. You know, you don't want M-Pesa being able to charge whatever it wants. The M-Pesa fees were expensive. They've come down a bit. Um, the thing which I find kind of fascinating about Paytm is that it's clearly like next generation compared to M-Pesa because when M-Pesa launched, it was basically, you know, your old Motorola flip phones. Everything was done basically over text messaging. Now everyone has smartphones which can show QR codes, and it really vastly expands the potential of what you can do with one of these systems in a way that it's hard hard to change M-Pesa to do what Paytm can do. But Paytm, because it's starting from scratch, can assume that everyone has a screen on their phone, which you didn't really have in the M-Pesa days. Yeah, and I would also say, I think... In some ways, at least in the larger cities, you could see some quick adaptation in India. Because I was actually in India at the end of December, early January, right after demonetization. And honestly, I was shocked by how easily I could get around not having any access to cash. As you know, any any of us who have been to Sweden in the past five years will say the same thing. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen the Swedish banknote. New York, though, try getting a <laughs> fucking drink without <laughs> any. I mean, it's these things are path dependent. I think it's very easy to start making sweeping uh, statements about like Sweden is good, Germany is good. Like Germany is very, very cash based. Sweden is very, very card based. Um, And so long as everyone is doing the same thing, it all basically works. If you know you're people in the German bars are walking around with these whopping great things full of banknotes and everyone's paying cash. That's efficient. If people in Swedish bars are paying for everything using cards, that's efficient. What's not efficient is when you try and mix the two. And that's actually right. what we have in the, in America yes. right now. Because again, we don't like top-down regulation at all and thus chaos. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, so now we're going to walk into a massive buzzsaw of conflict. Sorta. Um, so before we, <laughs> <laughs> but we will, we will, we will disclose this and move on. Jordan, what what are we talking about? Yeah, so we're going to talk about um, the death of Dev Bootcamp, um, one of the very first, if not the first, uh, code academies, um, one of the OGs of that industry, which. It has for a few years now been owned by Kaplan uh, and Kaplan's owned by Graham Holdings. Slate is owned by Graham Holdings. Um, on many occasions, I have written uh, very vicious things about for profits in general and uh, no one has complained. So we're free to say pretty much whatever we want. OK. And actually, weirdly, segment. Kaplan is not a villain in this story. Not really. No, no. actually, I, I kind of I was even trolling message boards last night, like to see like if people from Silicon Valley, like what their feelings were about Kaplan's role in this. And it was it, it was mixed, but mostly positive, I think. Um, so so let's like back up a yeah. little bit. Um, Anna, what is a coding boot camp and why are people so into them? So a coding boot camp is usually a short term, you know, a few weeks sometimes ranging from $10,000 to $20,000 to teach people coding skills so that they can get entry-level jobs in Silicon Valley companies. That is a good summary. And, <laughs> and, and yeah. Dev Bootcamp was one of the first and was always highly regarded. Yeah. They, they, did very, they had very good tuition. They had small class sizes. Um, like most of these coding boot camps, there were questions about whether their official statistics on right, how many graduates wound up getting six-figure salaries upon graduation were entirely reliable. Although you could also make the same uh, statement about a lot of regular colleges as well. Oh, you, you can certainly. You can. I mean, that absolutely applies to law schools as well. Yes. Um, so, but the but the people who graduated from it generally did graduate with monetizable skills. Yes. And that is one of the interesting things about coding boot camps in general is that people are looking at them and saying, well, they might cost however many thousand dollars, but at the end of it, I have a six-figure job ahead of me and that's a good thing. And increasingly, the uh, business model of these things is based on we won't even charge you up front and we'll just take a slice of your salary after you graduate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So dev boot camps have been really fascinating to watch over the last few years and people who are in education policy have been really fascinated by them because they represent this sort of alternative model right that's outside of the accreditation system that we use in the u.s to kind of regulate colleges and universities and there's this whole idea that oh they can fix our lack of tech skills if you believe we actually have a lack of tech skills but i you know they and so i think you've gotten sort of both you've seen sort of both the um you know the good side and the bad side of letting the free market try to make a new education model with with these, they've um, there clearly been something really successful. Dev Bootcamp was again highly regarded, and a lot of the spin off kind of um, you know companies that followed in its footsteps were successful at getting people into good jobs. I have friends who went to Dev Bootcamps and now work at places like Blue Apron or tech firms in Denver and are very happy with their lives. Um, and at the same time, there's also just been an explosion of them. There are some that are kind of considered 
fly by night. Um, again, there are these questions about their statistics. And so the hope is now that we're going to see sort of a shakeout right in the market that the ones that are really producing results are going to thrive and continue to grow while the lesser ones kind of collapse. And I don't think that's going to happen okay. because Dev Bootcamp is one of the better ones. Well, yes. And I feel that it collapsed precisely because it's one of the better ones. And that. it because it didn't it wasn't willing to compromise on cost. That is right. the scary thing. Exactly. Exactly. Because yes. if you're trying to have quality and accessibility, that's you can maybe do that. If you're small, you can't scale that. And there are two issues here. One is that while in an ideal world, you know, all of these consumers would be highly educated and would be able to intuit which of the boot camps are genuine and which ones are fly by night. The fact is that these things all too often are sold rather than bought. And there's very little reason to believe like I've I've spent some time looking into like trying to compare and contrast different coding boot camps. It's really hard. It's really, really hard to try and work out who's selling you a bit of bill of goods and which ones are, are, are genuine. And on top of all of that, and partly because it's so hard to tell the difference, um, the general emerging consensus among people who spent a lot of time looking at this is you're probably best off going to a community college and learning to code there because it's going to cost you less money. You're going to get the same skills. I would agree with that. Although one of the things I will say about these the dev boot camps that is good is the opportunity cost is lower in the sense of yeah. you're not spending that much time. And although I normally am a big believer in community colleges as opposed to for-profit colleges, for this particular skill, spending a few weeks may make more sense. I mean, some of them are six weeks or, you know, are, are short. Some of them are longer. Some of them really, like, stretch out for a year. So, I mean, but they do. And, but yeah. also, like, community colleges are not standing still here. Like, they're not forcing you to spend two years at college to learn to code. They yeah. are moving into this space. Yeah. I think maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic about these than you are, Felix, which is a weird feeling. It's <laughs> like, a weird sensation. Um, in that, you know, Dev Bootcamp, I think the fact that they spent money to provide a quality education um, was part of their downfall, it seems. Um, right. At the same time, other people said, you know, and, and they said themselves, they never found a sustainable business model. That was part, you know, that was uh, part of their statement. They just could not do it. At the same time, they were more of like the cash upfront, pay tuition ahead of time school of thought. Whereas you are seeing people or you are seeing dev boot camps trying this, okay, we'll take a portion of your salary after graduation, which frankly isn't that different than what the federal government does with student loans and income-based repayment. It's just sort of a variation on it. And I think it's actually, um, it's a good it's good for consumers in a lot of ways. It, it's it, it kind of protects you from the downside, and so it, the the boot camps that are using that approach, and if they can scale that, um, I I'm, I feel kind of okay about them. I I feel like that would be a example of good innovation in um in private higher education. At some point in the future, we can talk about the many failed experiments of sort of buying and selling equity in college oh, graduates. Oh, oh absolutely. Well, that, oh, that's we a can whole have all, And this yes. is and, and the thing which this worries one seems me like less of a fit. This seems like more promising than many of those previous experiments. Uh, but, yes. But it's but it's moving in that direction and what it and often the people who do get good jobs wind up paying like eye-watering yeah. amounts of money for this credential. Yeah, I think well you have to cap it at some point. Like that that I mean there are a lot of things you have to do to make it work. And I think you know the other aspect of this that makes me a little bit more comfortable is that these, at least up until now, these code academies have tended to cater to a more educated 
uh, already a, a kind of a, a savvier, more educated uh, population, a customer base. Um, that might be changing given how much they've grown, but it's not the same thing as the for-profit industry that was going after people Praise who barely made income, it out yeah. of high, you know, who had barely made it out of um, high school. I mean, it is we're talking about a categorically different thing in a lot of ways, at least up until now, I think. So again, I you know I have some faith that the, that this is an example where the free market could find an arrangement to get it to work eventually. And what's more, as I say, as the free market and if the free market does find things which work many of those things which work will actually trickle down into community colleges and benefit a much broader range of people yes i agree with that agreed this episode of slate money is brought to you by wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called the best one yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Now Warren Buffett. Yeah. What was that? I said Warren Buffett. You said Warren Buffett? I did. You said Warren Buffett? You said Warren Buffett? What's Warren Buffett up to? So... King B. Yes. (laughs) Two of our favorite recurring characters, Warren Buffett and Paul Singer, um, were up to quite a bit this past week. So Warren Buffett made a $9 billion cash bid for Encore, which is this Texas uh, regulated energy utility. We're not going to get into the Torrid history of Encore, but although it's fascinating, let's just say, say actually, yeah, I mean, they were like a they were the a, biggest they were, LBO in history. Yeah, I say they were leveraged. Yes. They are a cautionary tale. They, they are, really are. So, so Texas Pacific Group and a few other private equity companies bid, I think, it was forty five billion dollars yes. or something to buy this thing, which is now worth nine billion, yeah. or to buy something. Well, no, as, the, well, the, the enter- subsidiary, yeah, and the enterprise billion. value is like eighteen billion. So it it gets complicated. There's lots of capital stacks, but basically, a once upon a time, there was a big bet on there gas was, prices, and it failed. And then, yeah, natural gas prices tanked, and we had a financial crisis. Yeah, and but people borrowed a lot of money, yes. and that's that becomes key to this story. Yes, and so, what happens when people borrow a lot of money and that debt winds up going into default? Is that the debt? Uh, ends up in the hands of vulture investors. It ends up in the hands of Paul Singer. And yes. who, <laughs> there is no greater vulture investor than Mr. Paul Singer, who runs a hedge fund called Elias Associates, which you might remember from such hits as... Ar- Argentina. Argentina, <laughs> Peru, and um, various others. So now, this is interesting. Um, Warren Buffett is offering to buy Encore for what 
looks to me as a, as though it's a positive sum of money. It's greater than zero, which means presumably that Paul yes. Singer will get paid back. Well, on his okay, debt. yes, Sorta. but Paul Singer. Okay, here's the issue: when they bought this debt, they bought senior liens, but they also bought a lot of sub debt, and a lot of these are just. I mean, this is like very junior debt. And with this $8 billion price, you're looking at a recovery value of like 18 to 24 cents. I don't know what their cost basis was. Okay, I so saw, I saw it was like 30 cents in some cases. Okay, yeah. so let's it, let's just rewind a minute pro- because yeah. I'm going to I'm going to guess that a lot of people kind of found it difficult to keep up with that. <laughs> so <laughs> first, first of all, um, we have to say that when when Anna talks about picks, she's not talking about like pick one from three. She's talking about payment in kind. Payment in kind. And we're also talking about structures here where even if you're buying the company, that doesn't mean that the creditors get paid in full. And the ultimate way that this Warren Buffett bid is going to play out basically means that creditors in Paul Singer's situation are going to get less than, what, 30 cents on the dollar. Yes. And so Paul Singer is looking at this company and going, hmm, I think I can do better than that. In fact, I bought this company on the base, I bought this company's debt on the basis that it was worth more than that. And so he's thinking of actually making his own bid. Yes. And again, he doesn't actually have the money to do it himself. So he's going to have to bring in other people. But I would actually argue that he doesn't actually want to take this over. He is simply putting in a counter bid to try to increase the Berkshire Hathaway Right, bid. because Elliott Associates is many things, but a long-term operator of a regulated utility is not, is not one, one of them. them. No, yes. I mean, this is a fantastic asset. I mean, honestly, this was a this was a smart trade by Elliott, and it's a great purchase by Buffett. Like, this is an example of, like, the prototypical fantastic distress trade because you have a ring-fenced asset, which is separate from the bankruptcy of the parent company. It generates tremendous amount of cash. It has very low borrowing costs. It is a stable business. And so, and right now, Buffett is potentially getting this at a really attractive price. It is an example of his value investing parts. And do we know roughly how much Paul Singer paid for his debt, which is now worth 25 cents on the dollar? It's going to be a mix because, again, he had some of those senior liens and then he had a lot of the sub debt. So obviously the sub debt was going to be less. I don't know exactly. One can guess because his counteroffer is about 300 million more. Also, the structure of it is more credit credit or friendly that you could, again, guess exactly where, where his cost basis was. But he's looking for about a 50 cent recovery. So... Anna is like really, really into the aesthetics of this deal. Like you're, it's like, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're admiring as a piece of art. I, I want to talk about why I find this so entertaining because I just think it's a a, a story that's going to end with Paul Singer getting treated real <laughs> ugly down in Texas, as they like to say. Um, yes. And so here, here's the thing: Warren Buffett is getting this great deal because already Texas regulators have rejected one purchase offers two. two sorry two purchase offers on this company like they've already said nope not good and that's that's fine like regulators need to be careful with who runs their utilities like they are they they that that company is responsible for sending electricity to like 10 million texans yep so it's a big deal who owns this so warren buffett is marching down there and first off warren buffett he knows electricity. He's got a he's got an energy unit at Berkshire Hathaway. Significant energy. Yeah, unit. he's got experience in this extremely boring business. It's right up his alley. And also, he's Warren fucking Buffett. 
He walks in, and we've talked about this. The Warren fucking Buffett effect is really important for his deal making because he gets that little bit of premium. People know him, they trust him. Yep. He's he is America's billionaire grandpa. Like he is already well on his way to working this through with regulators. He knows this. They he is a known entity to them. All of a sudden, you have Paul Singer a vulture capitalist from New York showing up who's best known for just trying to throttle a, you know developing countries for money in South you know in South America he shows up he's like oh i'm going to put in a counter offer to drive up Warren Buffett's bid like any regulator in Texas is ever going to even humor this guy it just looks like he's going to end up with a bunch of egg on his face so i have two thoughts okay so on, one, on the one hand, Berkshire Hathaway is definitely more well-situated. They were really smart to actually essentially go to the regulators first and get a tacit agreement before they were even going to bankruptcy courts, which is really smart. Now, the other issue, though, that Elliot has a little bit of a trump card is they know Berkshire and Buffett do not like bidding wars. They don't like litigation. And Elliot loves litigation. There's nothing in the world he loves more than litigation. And he also knows that right now, what are Buffett's options? Okay, you can walk away from this deal. Again, this is a fantastic deal. I can go more later about why this is such a fantastic deal. (laughs) But okay, so you can walk away from that. Or you could potentially try to force a cram down, which is going to be long, very expensive legal process. Or you can up your bid by $300 million. $300 million may sound like a lot of money. We're talking about a $9 billion bid. Honestly, I think Elliot's not in as bad of a position as you said. Having said that, you are right. Also, apparently, the advisor that's working with Encore has like bad blood yes. with uh, with Singer. Yeah, so, Kirkland and yeah, Ellis. Exactly. The law firm doesn't yeah, like them. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, this is where like Elliot, Elliot doesn't, like um, Singer and Elliot overall, they don't do themselves any favors. Yeah, they're they're walking down into a hornet's nest just full of angry people who don't like them. Right. <laughs> and also going into what we were saying before in terms of the history of this and why they're in this situation, it's because of these hedge funds and private equity funds that put so much debt on the parent company. So these regulators are very suspicious of that. And part of the reason those other bids were killed was because they want to make sure that the dividend policy of this company can't be changed and that it can't be settled with debt. And the and this is the great advantage of Warren Buffett, and this is the bigger picture here, is that Buffett has huge amounts of cash, so he doesn't need to settle, eighty billion dollars. He, does, he doesn't need to saddle up businesses with that, and he has been operating many wholly owned businesses for many many years, almost none of which are levered in that way, um, because. He doesn't need to borrow money because he has this wonderful thing called insurance float, which he can use instead, yes. which is a kind of debt in that it's a contingent it's a liability, liability but... which you, in theory, need to pay back like when people make insurance claims. But in practice, you never need to pay it back. And so he just gets to play around with this huge pool of money. And what's really fascinating is the way in which he has evolved over the past what, 15 years or so, um, away from buying stocks on the stock market and into buying incredibly regulated industries, not only in energy, but also the big one being in railroads. Mm -hmm. And there is, again, a very good reason for that. Part of it is what we just said. He is sitting on so much cash. So right now, again, that's why this makes a lot of sense because there are there's nothing in the public markets of value. And I would actually argue over the past 10 years, as we've seen this kind of inflation of asset prices, there just 
isn't a lot of value. And on top of that, when you're a value investor, when you start to have more and more and more assets under management, that is actually kind of a negative because it's harder to find opportunities for that type of size on the public market. So it's not surprising that you're going to shift into the private markets. Well, so the utilities thing also kind of makes sense just inherently, right? Because like if you're if you're a value investor and there's not much value on the market, you know, what's What's your other advantage if you're Warren Buffett? Well, your cost of equity is lower. That's part of the insurance flow. Like you, do, or your cost of capital, I'm sorry, is lower. Like that's that's his great advantage with running oh. Geico. And so, if you walk in and you buy a highly regulated utility, you know that it's never going to like go crazy on its returns. But it's still you're paying so your 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 investment costs so little comparatively that you can do better than most. Totally, and this is actually really important because traditionally insurance companies tend to invest much more in bonds, as I mentioned, because you're trying to offset your liabilities with your assets. But because bond prices have been so low, and it's 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 been harder to do that. And then on top of that, now see, Berkshire is in a unique position because they just. It's such a fantastic business. They have so much cash. They can invest significantly more aggressively than a lot of other companies. Having said that, this is actually the utility company almost serves as a bond proxy because you're getting these consistent, predictable, income-generating returns, which can then also offset the volatility of your equity portfolio. Not that there's been a tremendous amount of volatility, but in theory. So again, that's why this makes so much sense. That's why this type of company makes so much sense. And also, in the past 10 years, there's been such a push into utilities because bond prices have been so, the yields have been so low. This is That's why this is such a really fantastic investment. That, that's like the most wonderful summary of like, just like finances conception of human beings though. <laughs> like your whole company is a bond to me. <laughs> like, it's a bond proxy. No, it's true though. I mean, like there's I'm a- not hating. It's just, it's funny. It's all. <laughs> there's a reason that utility like equity has been just skyrocketing because again, it's a place where you can get low risk, solid yield. Let's have a numbers round. Yeah. I, I feel like we, we haven't had a numbers round for a week. We're overdue for a numbers <laughs> round. Uh, Anna, what's your number? My number is 1.6%. Okay. That is how much the Bovespa, the Brazilian stock exchange. Oh, my uh, God. Poor Lula going as, to jail. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So, it happened. Yes. So this is, A, I just found it amazing, a lot of the headlines, which were like, this may affect his ability to run for president. And you're like, <laughs> you think? So, okay. The headline is that Lula, the former president of Brazil who installed um, a vaguely independent judiciary, um, now has been kind of, is probably regretting yeah. the independence <laughs> oh, yeah. of the judiciary <laughs> because he has been jailed, so much for, before. <laughs> jailed for nine years for doing what all Brazilian presidents have always done, which is be corrupt and steal lots of money. Um, and so this was actually a beach house, <laughs> but the but the um, stock market in Brazil welcomed this and went up one point six percent. Exactly. So there you go. Hey, rule of law. <laughs> My well, it does show that yeah. there is it, there is a rule of law. If you can jail a former president, right. a that very is, very popular former president, that is a was, sign that yeah. civil society is kind of working. My number is eight billion which is the debt in dollars of Air India. Um, everybody's least favorite airline. I don't oh, my God. <laughs> I took Air India the last time, and it was the worst thing I've ever been on in my life. I have taken Air India precisely once. When I first flew to America um, 
1997 when I kind of moved here. I had a return flight on Air India. And it was so bad that I just let my return leg lapse. I was like, I will, I will just never use just that return walk. leg. What, leg. what happened? Like what? basically every every time I've fl- flown back to the UK since then, I have bought a ticket from the US to the UK and back, so that I never need to. I never needed to use no, that. But return what leg. was so awful about Air India? Like what was? Like, it was a okay. So Air India is this big state-owned airline, and the reason why. Um, I'm mentioning the enormous amount of debt it has and the fact that it's losing money and the fact that it has 27,000 employees <laughs> who have a who love to go on strike about every week. Um, the hilarious thing is that the Indian government has decided it wants to sell oh. Air India. <laughs> and you're like... Who in their right mind would even want a minority stake in this in this just miserable, miserable airline? I have never been on a plane that was so hot. I am always cold. I, it doesn't matter where I am. I am cold. That plane was like 98 degrees. It was the worst flight experience I've ever had in my life. My turn. Your turn. My turn. My number is 11. Uh, that's the number of countries that now seem like they're going to try and negotiate TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, oh, it's it back. To, it's it's kind of coming back. It looks like Japan's leading the, the charge because they really want this thing. Uh, uh, it used to be 12. That's because the U.S. was involved. Now we are Trumplandia, so we no longer are involved. But it's still not China, right? That's no, the it's whole not thing. China. It's not China. Well, China was never. No, it, right. never, it never was. But, you know, what's a little frustrating to me about this is like, there is a world where there was a, a TPP skeptic president who would have actually tried to renegotiate it and maybe get rid of some of the awful things in that deal, like maybe finally taking a stand against, you know, in ISDS, those international tri- you know arbitration right. tribunals that worry so many people, um, that maybe there was a alternate reality where that happened. But instead, um, we got an anti-trade isolationist who just has actually given up leadership on this issue. And so, so it, it's quite possible that some of the worst things about that deal that really worried people are going to be further entrenched in the global trade system. So I think on which depressing note, we are going to bring this week's edition of Slate Money to a close. I should mention that there is another podcast that you should listen to beyond just Slate Money. First of all, Make sure you're subscribed to Slate Money. Leave us reviews on iTunes and be like a Slate Money fan because we love ourselves more than anyone else. But then go check out Hang Up and Listen, which is hosted by Josh Levin and Stefan Fatsis. It posts on Mondays and you can find it at slate.com slash hang up. It's sports. It is sports. <laughs> It's, good. it's very good. It's I, I feel like I should be pitching this. You, you, yeah, I mean, Jordan should should jump in here because the amount I know about sports, sports is ball. exactly. For anyone, I know, you know, I know that to... the main thing I know about this show is that it's it's talking about sports and it does not. It is not hosted by Chris Christie. That's that's true. It is none. Of, it is not hosted by Chris Christie. If anybody wants to get a good sense of what Felix does know about sports, that we have a sports edition from years ago that was absolutely delightful, where he kind of revealed he actually knows something about soccer. Like he doesn't. He kind of likes to pretend he knows absolutely nothing about sports ball, but he does have. Some, he does know a little bit about football. Uh, yeah, and and I will say, go Dulwich Hamlet. <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of Dulwich Hamlet Football Club in in South London and and also Partick Thistle okay. in, in Glasgow. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> but, on that okay. delightfully Anglo <laughs> note. Yes. On this, on that delight, and I can guarantee you that Dulwich Hamlet and Partick Thistle are two teams which will never ever be mentioned on Hang Up and Listen. <laughs> um, but go check out Hang Up and Listen. 
and write to us at slatemoney at slate.com and tell us if you have any questions about the economics of football teams. Apparently, according to Forbes, the Dallas Cowboys are worth $4.2 billion. That's not bad. That's a lot of money. There's another extra bonus. You know, Donald Trump had an opportunity to buy them, apparently, at one point. I just learned. And he turned Um, it down. He probably wouldn't be worth $4.2 billion today, though, if he had been running them. You know, but... Some other, maybe eventually, if my Dallas Cowboys article ever comes out, we can talk about the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> sure. um, you you have that in the future if you're if you want to treat. Um, but for the time being, thank you for listening. Thank you to Dan Schrader for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. <laughs> <laughs>